word once you have found it. And we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 9. If you're capable of standing, please do so. Verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on under perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it is dressed, Receiveth blessing from God, but that which uh, uh, beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded that uh, the uh, better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. The title of the Bible study tonight is this, A Call to Christian Maturity. A call to Christian maturity. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us as we seek to try to understand uh, and explain a very uh, uh, difficult text in a lot of ways, a text that stumped a lot of people, a text that's confused a lot of people. And Lord, as we try to explain it, understand it, would you give us clarity? And Spirit of God, would you teach us? Lord, as uh, we firmly believe here, uh, we don't need men to teach us. We need the Spirit of God to teach us. And Lord, you can just use your words and and my feeble attempt of explaining, but Spirit of God, you do the teaching in the heart. And so help us to understand the passage and then leave here committed to be more faithful to what you've called us to do. Lord, our axe, or rather our sword sharpened just that much more as we head out into a dark world. May we be bright lights. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, last week's Bible study. Last week's Bible study, we were in the end of Hebrews 5, and the title of it was... It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. And if you go back to the end of Hebrews 5, you see there that he says that we want you to teach, but instead you need to be taught. And we want you to eat the meat of God's word, but all you can handle is the milk. And so uh, he, he called them a bunch of babies. He used the term babes at the end of End of the, and I don't think he meant like a good looking girl, okay? I, I think he meant like you, you're stuck on milk, like a baby is stuck on milk. And we talked last week about that, and we said that, look, there's nothing wrong with milk. First uh, uh, Peter 2, 2 talks about his newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. And we talked about the difference between milk and meat. And milk is processed food, and meat is unprocessed food, and and a baby uh, drinks the milk of its mother. Mom eats and turns her food into milk, and she lactates and, uh, uh, based off what she's eaten, and she feeds that baby food that her body is processed, and meat is, is, is food that is yet to be processed. And so we said that milk for the new Christian is when you 
come to church and a Sunday school teacher or a pastor, maybe you have a devotional at home, uh, maybe you have a commentary at home, but a milk would be when someone else has taken the meat of God's Word, they've done the work of processing it for you, and they're giving it out to you. That's the milk of God's Word. And the meat of God's Word, that comes, you, you, you gain the ability to take in the meat of God's Word as you develop spiritual teeth, and as you grow. And we looked at last week Hebrews uh, chapter 5, and we've been studying about how Jesus is uh, the fulfillment of the priesthood. And we got to verse 10. In fact, look up at chapter 5, verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 10 is a recap of verse 1 through verse 9. Okay, so he's coming back and recapping everything that's been covered. That's the second time he's dropped Melchizedek's name in the chapter. Verse 6 uh, uh, says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you can feel as though the author puts his pen down and he takes a deep breath and he thinks, these people don't even understand what I'm talking about because they're dull of hearing. They're, they're, they're immature in Christ. They're, they're stuck. They're stuck as babes in Christ. I'm trying to give them meat and, and they can't handle meat. So then he picks his pen back up in verse number 11 and says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. You, 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 it's just coming in one ear and going right out the other. Here I am trying to explain to you the priesthood. Now Jesus is a fulfillment of the priesthood, and you all are dull of hearing. Verse 12, for uh, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you. Uh, verse number uh, 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason of, of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Uh, up in verse number 13, he says that they need uh, uh, milk because they are unskillful in the word of righteousness. And we know that the word of God is compared to a sword just a couple of chapters earlier in this book. In fact, it's more powerful than a sword. And he says, you don't know how to wield this sword. You are a baby in Christ. And so then we come to chapter six and he will eventually get back into teaching about the priesthood. But he says, listen, since you're dull of hearing, since you're unskillful in the word of righteousness, uh, uh, since you are babes in Christ, let's take a minute and let's talk about spiritual maturity. Now, I love holding babies. Love it. Uh, when I was 13, my mom had twins. And so um, I'd come home from school. Seventh, eighth grade, I'd come home from school and I would sit down in the chair and I was living in Alabama. I'd sit down in the chair and I'd turn on the TV and I would turn on the Andy Griffith show. How many here like the Andy Griffith show? All right. I love the Andy Griffith show. And I'd watch Barney and Opie and, and, and Andy and Aunt B, Aunt B, uh, and, and all of them. And, uh, and I'd watch the Andy Griffith show and my mom would plop one of the twins in my arms. And I would take a bottle and I would feed that one until he fell asleep. Or if he had been fed, I'd burp him with a burp cloth. I'd rock him to sleep. I'd carry him and I'd lay him in his crib. And then my mom would bring the other twin who'd been screaming waiting for me and plop him on my arms. And I would either feed or burp him, rock him to sleep and put him in his bed. And so ever since then, I've had an affinity for babies. And, you know, the old adage is that politicians and pastors, they love to kiss babies. And, uh, you know, it's just a political stunt. But if you ever see me with a baby, and some of you have, you'll know it's genuine. I really, really, really love babies. But you know what I don't want to see with babies? I don't want them to be stuck in their development 
as a baby. You know what we look at when, uh, when uh, you, some of you grandmoms and grandmothers, grandfathers in here, uh, some of you are moms and dads, maybe small kids, or you remember back to just a few years ago when your children were little. And my wife would say things like, I hope you stay a baby forever. And I get what we're trying to say, but when that baby hits a certain age, we're looking for developmental, right? We're looking for them to hit benchmarks. And when a child gets a certain age and they're not rolling over, we're taking them to the doctor. When a child gets a certain age and we're talking to them and they're not responding or looking at us, hey, we're wondering what's going on. When a child gets a certain age and they're not speaking uh, or, or their, their attention span is off, uh, or they're not walking, or they're not crawling, boy, we begin to become concerned. And here what the author of Hebrews is saying, really, it's God through whoever's hand uh, he used to write this, really what the author of Hebrews is saying is, there's need to be concerned. You have not developed, you're not hitting the benchmarks. When you should have rolled over for the Lord, you just stayed on your back. When you should have been crawling, you're just still laying there. Uh, when you should have been walking, maybe you're beginning to roll over and there's no spiritual teeth in your mouth and some of you have been saved for 15 and 20 years. Hey, it's time to get picking up because if you don't start progressing, there's great reason to be concerned. If you don't start progressing, hey, then uh, uh, maybe we need to take you to a spiritual doctor and find out what's going on. And so um, uh, he's going to teach them and talk to them about the importance of how to mature in the Lord. In fact, look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto, what's that next word? Perfection. That doesn't mean that you go on to being sinless. That means you go on to being mature. That word perfection there means mature. All right? It, it, it comes across in the root language as maturity. All right? Let us go on into maturity. Let us go on from milk drinking to meat eating. Let us go on from being unskillful in the word to skillful in the word. Let us move on from um, uh, uh, being taught to teaching and being able to give, articulate an answer for the hope that lieth within us and not just being left to scratch our head or caught mumbling and bumbling about when someone wants to know about what we believe. And so he's going to lay out the case for spiritual maturity. Now, that's very important because in a minute we're going to get into some verses that are highly misinterpreted. It's very important we understand what this is about. This is not about being saved. You listening? This passage is not about being saved. This passage is about whether or not you're ever going to mature in the Lord or you're going to be stuck as a baby in Christ. We all together on this? Okay, let's jump into the outline tonight and uh, try to get through the whole thing. I've got four main points to cover. And so um, uh, we'll, we'll see how far we get here. We've got about 25 minutes. Number one, the Jewish Christian's focus. The Jewish Christian's focus. Now, there are some things we can pull out of this, uh, but this is specifically written to the Jewish Christians uh, of that day, and maybe even Jewish Christians today that would still be stuck into Old Testament law and Old Testament traditions. All right. Look at verse uh, uh, one and two. It says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Letter A, notice their direction. 
their direction. Look back at verse number one and let's dissect this verse uh, slowly and carefully. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on, move on, advance to perfection. What's this mean? Um, Okay, the doctrines of Christ would be the Old Testament negatives that need to be taken into the black room and turned into pictures. All right. This is uh, I heard someone say once that the Old Testament are the slides and the New Testament is the slide projector. All right. He's saying that the Old Testament contains the ABCs, one, two, threes of Christ. It's time that we leave that we move on from that, that we advance up. We quit focusing on kindergarten material and we start focusing on elementary, middle school and high school and bachelor degree and master and doctorate degree material. By the way, you never, ever arrive. How many of you with me right here? You never, ever stop learning. These are the unsearchable riches of Christ, meaning that you can try to dive to the deepest ocean of the Bible. You'll never find the bottom. You can keep studying and studying and studying and you'll never quite figure it all out. And so he says it's time to leave kindergarten. It's time to leave your milk drinking. It's time to leave the ABCs and one, two, threes. And it's time to move up. Here was the problem, and you have to keep in context who this is written to. This is written to brand spanking new Jewish Christians who are trying to leave Judaism behind and adapt to Christianity right after Christ ascended and the church began. A very confusing time, a very difficult time. All of the hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of years of rituals in the temple and priests and sacrifices and brazen altars and holy of holies and days of atonement and day of jubilee and all the things in the Old Testament, they're supposed to just say, okay, we're closing the door to that and we're going to march forward into the church era. And as we've talked about in weeks past, we have a hard time switching grocery stores, much less leaving all that stuff behind. This was difficult for them. And here what he's saying is, it's time to leave behind the typology of Christ that's found in the Old Testament and realize that Christ has come and lived and died and risen again and ascended to heaven. It's time to start living in Christ. It's time to start studying. It's time to stop studying about Christ. It's time to start living in Christ. It's time to leave kindergarten and time to advance on into other levels, their direction, letter A, letter B, their distractions, their distractions. They were caught up. They were caught up in Old Testament doctrines. They were caught up focusing on typologies instead of focusing on Christ. And we're going to look at those typologies that are listed right here in chapter six. Again, I I didn't label this our direction and our distractions because these are not our distractions. I don't think anyone here. Uh, would be distracted by these, maybe, but probably not. Uh, but there are things that distract us. We'll get to that uh, more in a minute. Look back at chapter 6 and look down at uh, halfway through verse number 1. It, said, uh, it says, They're not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Let's take that one first. Repentance from dead works. You know what that is? That's the keeping of the Old Testament law. This is the same thing John the Baptist preached when he came on the scene. He's p- preaching a repentance from dead works. And you know what? It was never about the keeping of the law that got you into heaven. Uh, as Romans explains, or I believe Galatians as well, what is the purpose of the law? It's to be what? A schoolmaster. 
to be a schoolmaster. It's to show us, hey, you fall short. The law, the law was perfected in Christ. He came along with grace and he tied the two together and he said, all the law does is show you where you're wrong. Christ shows you how to get right. He didn't do away with the law. He perfected and completed the law. And here they're focusing on repentance from dead works, keeping the law, keeping the law. It's that, it's that Judaism legalism, that legalism of I must keep the law in order to make peace with God. And no, you must turn to Christ to make peace with God. Uh, look at the next one there in verse number one. Uh, uh, again, uh, or, uh, let's see here. He may offer, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter six, not chapter five. Uh, uh, foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Uh, turn over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. Hold your place there in uh, Hebrews, obviously, where we're studying tonight. Acts chapter number 20 and 21. Understand that in the Old Testament, to get to heaven, they put their faith in God that he would send the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, we don't put our faith in Generically, in God to get to heaven, specifically, we put our faith in who? Jesus Christ. Jesus was very clear when he came to earth. I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so, please understand, this is semantical but necessary. The Old Testament, to get to heaven, they put their faith in God to send the Messiah. In the New Testament, we put our faith in Christ because he is the Messiah that God was supposed to send. And this is articulated in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21. It says, testify both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jews and Greeks, these, these two groups are being tied together here. Faith in God, yes. But more specific in the New Testament, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he said, you all are still worshiping uh, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, as your means to get to heaven, Yahweh, Jehovah, he has sent Christ. He has sent the Messiah, and you need to more specifically put your faith in him. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse number 2. Of the doctrine of baptisms, all right? Uh, doctrine of baptisms. Turn over to Titus chapter number 3. Titus should be just a couple of pages to the left there uh, in your Bible from Hebrews. In my Bible, it's exactly three pages. Titus chapter 3 and uh, verse number 5. Now, that word baptisms, interestingly, in Hebrews 6, 2, th- this is the only time... In the New Testament, that that root word is translated as baptisms. Three other places in the Bible, it's only used four times total. And the other three places, it's translated as washing or washing. Washing or washings. And so, baptisms. Now, remember, these folks are stuck in Old Testament typologies. Um, those of you that know the book of Leviticus well, there's a lot of washing going on, was there not? And they're worshiping their Old Testament traditions. And he says, no, 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 no. All of that was a picture of Christ and Christ has come. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5 says what? Read it there with me. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Look here. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, we read that verse and we don't think a lot of it. But you have to understand, those who understood Old Testament sacrifices and the washing of the animals and and the washing of your uncleanness after you'd been deemed unclean, uh, uh, they knew exactly that Jesus Christ is the one that washes us with his blood and we are regenerated anew in Christ. And he's saying here, listen, you're distracted. 
The reason why you're not maturing in Christ is because you're distracted. Your direction, you're stuck and you're, you're stunting your spiritual growth because you're distracted in repentance from dead works and faith toward God in the doctrine of baptism. How about this next one? Look at uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 2. The next one there, and of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands. Now, this isn't speaking of putting your hands on someone and, and ordaining them. This is not speaking of pouring oil on someone's head that's sick and praying over them. That's not what this is referring to. Again, keep it in context to the Old Testament uh, 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 ceremonialism that they're stuck in. Uh, turn back over to Leviticus chapter number 1. Look at verse 4 with me. And we'll see the laying on of hands that he's referring to here. Again, um, uh, and you still find this in the Jewish world, they're stuck on following a set of rituals, and they have failed to see that Christ is the completion of those rituals. They still celebrate the Passover without re- realizing that Jesus is the Passover. That, 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 that he, He's the way we pass from death uh, unto life. Look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. It says, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus as our priest, but in, and again, a couple of years ago when we went through the different sacrifices. But what did you, what, what was done here? You would go up to the animal, and you would lay your hands on the head of the animal, and guilt would be transferred from you onto the animal, and then the animal would be killed on your behalf. And these folks, they're, they're new Christians, and they're confused. And they're still just totally enamored with this laying on of hands thing. And, they, and, and what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, or really God's trying to say to him here is, look, your sins were transferred to Christ. And he died for you. That You don't need to worry about that anymore. All right. Let's continue on here. Laying on of hands. Look at the next two there. We'll look at these together. Uh, verse number two. It says, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Now, there are uh, there is some information in the end of Daniel about the resurrection of the dead. And there is limited information in the Old Testament about the eternal judgment. How many of you are intrigued by the book of Revelation? Would you raise your hand if you're intrigued, enjoy hearing, studying, reading about Revelation. Can I tell you a little bit? I'm not. I'm just being honest. I did a series on it last year, and and I got excited as I went, but I wasn't excited before, and I'm really not that excited anymore, because Revelation's going to be what it is. Okay? And I know I'm blessed if I read it and study it. All right? And so please don't throw any stones at me. But uh, I'm not really all that excited. But I understand most people are. Most people are intrigued about that. And, and any time you hear something in the news, you're like, that guy's the Antichrist. <laughs> Do you know every U.S. president for like the last ten has been called the Antichrist? And so, uh, including Donald Trump, which he's too brash and too much of a bully and not polished enough to be the Antichrist. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I don't want to get into politics. But uh, the point I'm trying to make uh, with, with, with all this is I forgot the point I'm trying to make because you all distracted me and I started chasing a rabbit and, uh, and, and forgot it. Oh, oh, I remember. Revelation. We're all enamored because there's all this intrigue and curiosity and questions left unanswered. For them, that was how it was for them with Daniel. They read Daniel and oh. 
They were intrigued. What, what, what is the statue? And, and, and what are the 70 weeks? And, and what is this resurrection of, of, of the dead found in the end of the book of Daniel? And, and he's saying, look, folks, you have your head buried in Old Testament prophecy, and it's being fulfilled right in front of you. In fact, for some of you, it was fulfilled in the person of Christ while you were alive. Take your heads out of the sand and quit worrying about Old Testament prophecy. Quit being distracted on the on the basics of the Old Testament. And look, you're, you're, you're focusing on the tributaries that contribute to the ocean of Christ. And the ocean of Christ is right here for you to look at. They're distractions. Now, here's what I'll say to us tonight, is that if we're not careful, we'll get bogged down in details that keep us from a relationship with God. And I'll tell you one way to know that you are maturing in the Lord. You quit worrying about keeping all the technical details that come with being a Christian and you get comfortable in your own skin and you just start growing in the Lord and loving on God and having a relationship with God. Now, I'm speaking to a group of people. Many of you come from a Catholic background. And as coming from a Catholic background, rituals and traditions were ingrained in you that that is part of church and part of religion. And, and listen, I get we're all creatures of habit. Some of you are really uncomfortable right now because you're not sitting where you normally sit in the auditorium. And you're like, oh, man, I, I don't know what to do with myself because this is not where I normally sit. I get that we're creatures of habit. They're like, we didn't have to move. All right. We're good. Um, okay, so come sit on the front row. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but um, uh, we get used to our, our traditions and our rituals. Can I tell you that while we have things that are habitually done here, right, we get into a cadence and a flow, none of that matters. What matters is that you walk with God. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is say, Hey! Get your head out of the sand. Quit studying and being all about the traditions of the past and focus on having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we may not be distracted by the same things listed in this chapter, but nonetheless, we get distracted by work, by making money, by our car, by our sports teams, by our hobbies, uh, by our families. And, And listen, none of those things necessarily are bad, but they are when they get put up in front of Christ and Christ has to take the back seat. Number one, the Jewish Christians focus. Number two, notice the Christians falling away. The Christians falling away. Now, I read these verses. And I said, huh? What's that mean? Let's read them together. And uh, we'll see how many of you are confident without doing your homework. And this will we do if God permit. Look at verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the power uh, powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. You know what those verses seem to say? You know what it sounds like it says? What's it sounds like it say, Pauline? Sounds like you can lose your salvation. Doesn't it? Does it not seem to say that? Hey, if I believed I could lose my salvation, I'd run right to this passage. And be like, what you going to do with that, buddy? 
right? Now, um, let's talk about this passage. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I read this, in fact, the first time I ever saw these verses and paid attention to them, someone who believed they could lose their salvation took me here and showed me that, and I said, I'll get back to you on that. Now, I was pastoring here when that happened. I said, I'll get back to you on that. I'm not ready to, to, to get into this passage with you, all right? Uh, but today, uh, I dug real deep. Now, here's what I found. I have, I have a boatload of commentaries in my office, and I don't generally read them or use them unless I'm just really stuck. I like to try to compare Scripture with Scripture and figure things out on my own. And after I feel like I've got a good beat on things, sometimes I'll look at commentaries and, and, and see that I'm either 100% off base or right. Generally, the Spirit of God is able to teach me in such a way where I don't really need to use my commentaries a lot. But here I was quite stumped. So I pulled out, I pulled out four different commentaries by people who are Baptistic in their doctrine, who are a whole lot smarter than I am. And you know what I found? All four of them had a different opinion about what this passage said. And all four of them began by saying, this is the most complicated passage in the Bible to understand. All four of them said that. It is commonly accepted amongst theologians that this is the most difficult passage in the Bible to understand. Now, I read one and I said, that's not what it means. And I read another and I said, Lord, is that what it means? And God said, that's not what that means. And I read another and God said, nope, not that one. Then I read another and I said, ding, 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 right there, that's it. And I think when we get through tonight, you'll have a really clear understanding of this passage. All right, let's begin. Letter A, notice different theories. Different theories. Now, these aren't going to be on the back of your bulletin there, and but they are going to come up on the screen. And if we had put all the material on the screen that I have on my paper, Joe, Brother Joe would have had to have made this like font two. We've just not gotten it all on there. So you'll have to find ways to scribble this in if you're interested in it. So here are the different theories as to what this passage means. The first one, loss of salvation. Loss of salvation. All right. I don't ascribe to this one, and I'm about to lay out a case why. Okay, I'm not going to turn to all these verses because I think I know what they all say. But let's go through them. John 6.37. John 6.37. Jesus said this. He said, He that cometh to me, if you know the verse, say it with me, I will in no wise cast out. So if you come to Jesus, he's never going to cast you out. So if he's never going to cast me out, can I fall away from, the, from salvation? No. How about John 10:28? John 10:28. I give unto them eternal life. That's probably verse 27. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then verse 28 talks about how that we're not, we're not only in Jesus' hand, but we're in the Father's hand as well. All right? How about, and I don't have it up here, but how about Romans 8 that talks about there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And then the end of Romans 8 talks about all of the things that cannot possibly separate us from the love of Christ. And no matter what you come up with as a way to lose your salvation, Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, 34 through 38 says you cannot lose your salvation. Okay, how about Ephesians 4.30? And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed under the day of redemption. You're sealed. So even if you grieve the Spirit of God with the way you're living, you're sealed. And that seal is never going to be broken. Hebrews 13.5 says, uh, uh, let's see, uh, I'm trying to remember how it begins. Be content with such things as you have. Uh, let, something about not being covetous. Be content with such things as you have. For I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. 
Now, I don't like to, in fact, I do a lot of counseling, and uh, when I do relationship counseling, something I encourage folks to do is to avoid the words never and always. You ever lost an argument because you used the word never or always? You always, you never, and then they begin, you know, listing all times they did or they didn't, and then you're wrong. All right. So using the word never and always, I had to learn very early in my marriage to knock that off because I like winning arguments against Angela, not losing them. Now I'm just teasing. Well, kind of. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but when God says never, he means it. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that means no matter what I do, he's never, ever, ever going to leave me. So this passage cannot mean that we're going to lose our salvation. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 talks about, uh, this is the story about the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church. By the way, if anybody could lose his salvation, it would have been this guy. And the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the destruction of the flesh for the saving of the spirit. What that means is, I'm going to allow his flesh to be destroyed by his sin so he can be saved in heaven. All right? So that's not what this teaches. All right? So that's, that's one theory of people who read this. And those who read this passage want to jump to that conclusion. And it, while it may seem to say that on the surface, that cannot be what it means because we know God's word does not contradict itself. Here's another theory. Okay? Here's another theory I, I read in a commentary or two. Salvation never occurred. Salvation never occurred. And here's what they say. We'll look back at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And uh, the idea here is that they had a head knowledge of the gospel, but never a heart knowledge of the gospel. And have tasted, and they, they will say that that word tasted just means to take a sip of, but not to actually... Uh, one commentary said, this is like sipping the soup, but not actually getting a cup of it to half. And um, when I dig into the Greek, that's... That's not quite accurate, okay? And they'll say, this person, they were enlightened in the head but not the heart. They tasted, but they didn't uh, partake. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They were partakers but not partners. And so this is a person that walked right up to the edge of being saved but never actually got saved. I'm sorry, but when I read these verses, it is clear this person is saved. Read it with me again. For it is impossible those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God. I think the author is going out of their way to say this person is saved. How many would seem to see it that way? Okay. By the way, if you ascribe to one of these theories, except for the first one, if you ascribe to the first one, then I can't agree with you at all. If you ascribe to any of the rest of these, I, there's room, there's grace between me and you to say, okay, all right, we, we can... We can uh, agree to disagree, and we can agree that you're wrong. All right. Um, salvation never occurred. Here's a third theory. And this is one I, I think maybe has a little bit of um, uh, traction to it. This is a hypothetical. This is a hypothetical. Let me show you the case made here. Okay? Look back at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted of heaven the gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come. What's the first word of verse 6? If. You know what you use if for in hypothetical situations, right? Okay. If they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance. So basically, it's impossible for them to fall away. Go back to the beginning. It's impossible if they fall away to come back. And they're saying that it's impossible to fall away. There are people who subscribe to this. And I have to say, of these three theories so far, I believe this one to be the most credible. 
I believe this one to be the most credible. And I believe this one could even likely be the interpretation of the passage. Let me uh, continue on here. Others ascribe to this theory that this applied only to first century Jews and does not apply to us today. Well, what's the case for this? What's the case for this? Again, the Old Testament temple is still standing when this is written. It's not yet been destroyed by Herod. It's still standing. And the sacrifices in the Old Testament temple are still going on. So by walking, they've gotten saved. And by walking back into the temple and being part of an animal sacrifice where the blood is spilt and shed, they're in essence saying, Jesus, your sacrifice was not the real sacrifice. These sacrifices are pointing to a Messiah who's yet to come. And because now that the temple is destroyed and those things don't happen anymore, then this no longer ceases to apply to us today. But those folks, those Jews that went back could lose their salvation. Now, I don't uh, believe this either, but that's the argument made. Now, let me give you my, uh, uh, of all of the five I'm going to give you, let me give you the, the version that I believe this uh, means, and that would be this one. This isn't directly talking about salvation. This isn't directly about salvation. I, I believe that the key to unlock this passage is verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. But, beloved... We are persuaded better things of you and things that, read those next two words with me, accompany salvation. Now go back to verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. This chapter is not talking about salvation. This chapter is talking about sanctification. This chapter is talking about good works done for Christ. Let me try to quickly lay out the case, and we'll have to save the rest of the Bible study uh, for next week. Okay, uh, wow, it's already 8.16. I just looked up and realized that. But let me make this case, and we'll, uh, we'll shut it down, okay? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Can you turn over there if you don't have it memorized? Can you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2? I think I can wrap this up in three or four minutes here. Ephesians 2. There are two types of salvation in the Bible. Two types of salvation in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let me ask a question tonight. This is a trick question, so answer carefully. Are works involved in being saved? Yes. But not our works, his work. Okay? I tricked you, didn't I? It's our faith in whose work? His work. Jesus' work. Okay? So... All salvation involves work. The key is it's not our work, it's his work. All right? Verse 10. Verse 10, we see the second salvation in the Bible. There's two salvations in the Bible. The second salvaging, and this one's a recycling, all right? Recycling of a broken life. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are his workmanship, Creating Christ Jesus into good works. A lot of people get saved and they sit on the pew and they don't do nothing. The rest of their life. You know what they are? They're spiritually immature. I know I'm using bad grammar. I'm doing it on purpose. So you grammar Nazis, put your, uh, put your pistols away, alright? They don't do nothing. Alright? Um, uh, what are they? They're, they're caught up, they're, they're, they're caught up in just gliding to the finish line. They're not working hard. Now, Psalm 51, 12, uh, again, we looked at this Sunday, Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of whose salvation? 
thy. That's a key word. Okay? What does Philippians 2.12 tell us? Work out your own salvation. So in Psalm 51.12, we find thy salvation, speaking of God's salvation. In Philippians 2.12, we find our salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the saving of one soul from hell. Ephesians 2, 10, the salvaging of our life unto good works. Um, uh, uh, Psalm 51, 12, the salvation of God, the joy that David was lacking uh, uh, because he was living in sin although he was saved. Philippians 2, 12, our salvaging or rescuing or rather recycling of our life Unto good works. This passage in uh, uh, Hebrews 6, in my opinion, is not talking about salvation. This passage is talking about the judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged for the good works of our life. Now, you remember back in Hebrews chapter 4 where, where we are paralleled to the children of Israel? You remember they walked right up to the promised land? And because of what? They were turned away. It starts with a U. Unbelief. Because of their unbelief, they were turned away and they were cursed to wander around in the wilderness. They were turned away from the land of rest, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, and forced to wander around the wilderness. I believe that same truth is being covered here in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. You, you have, you have been enlightened. You have been saved. You have experienced, been a partaker of the Holy Ghost. You have, uh, uh, you have uh, uh, tasted of the Word, eternal Word, and now you've turned your back to go back to Judaism? No, you're not lost, but boy, your works in heaven are going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. I believe that's what this passage is teaching. Now, if you take one of the other five, and, and as long as it's not lost to salvation, you take one of the other five and one around with that, there's room for us to, uh, to, to love each other and coexist in the same church and, and agree or agree to disagree. But I believe that verse 9 talks about these are things that accompany salvation, not salvation itself. So what can we take away from this? Let me just say this and I'll be done. Um, uh, we need a couple things. One, we need the Spirit of God to teach us His Word. So make sure you're praying while you read. Pray while you read. In fact, if you have notes, write that down. Pray while you read. Don't just open the Bible, read your three chapters, and close it. Get through it in a year and say, look at me, I'm a great Christian, I read my whole Bible through in a year. Don't do that. Don't read three verses without praying. You bow your head and you say, Lord, teach me your word. Teach me your word. You know how I put my sermons together? I read, I study, I pray. And then I read and study and pray. Then I read and study and pray. Then I read and study and pray. Then I read and study and pray some more. You know what? All of a sudden, magically, an outline falls on the paper. I'm not baking this up. That's exactly how it goes. I read, I study, I pray. Now, if it works for the pastor, it'll work for you. Read, study, and pray. That's the first thing we can take away. The second thing we can take away is don't be a Christian that falls away. Don't be a Christian that goes back to following a religion and turns your back on a relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. All right, let's, be, let's stand up to be dismissed with a word of prayer. We will finish this Bible study next week. I have a whole lot more to say about discerning difficult passages. And um, I think um, I think you get a lot out of it. Glad you're all here tonight. Some of you came right from work. You're tired. You're wore out and you're hungry. Go eat and go to bed. And then go uh, to work tomorrow and love Jesus and love the world around you. Amen. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Brother John Sivak, you back there?
Close this in prayer if you don't mind.